Welcome to Linworth Road Church, helping people become fully alive, fully mature, and fully on mission. Visit linworthroadchurch.com to learn more. Good morning. Great to have all of you here. I see so many faces here this morning. Welcome. And uh, I, it's been a a little bit of a marathon week in a marathon month, and I end up picking up a cold on Friday. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, so just got to get through one more service here, so keep me in your prayers as we, uh, as we roll through this. If you're a guest here, we have been studying this book, 1 Corinthians, and it gives us a pathway on how to grow as Christians, how to move towards maturity. I want you to think about the stories that dominate our 24-7 news cycle. How many are disputes about rights, land rights, gun rights, constitutional rights, human rights, customer rights, children's rights, divorce men's rights, divorce women's rights, union rights, civil rights, police rights, victim rights, gay rights, women's rights? Are the rights of Americans, the right to work, the right to vote, the right to privacy, free speech, to act on one's conscience, and states' rights? Now, some of these are, are legitimate. But they speak to the division that has gripped our country. Why such division? I think it reveals a society that has lost love and trust in one another. And what is the net effect of a society that has lost its moral center? What is the net effect when trust is so broken? That everyone's shield is always up. What happens when it's politicians and courts are forced to pick and choose winners and losers? What happens in that kind of world? The spirit of demanding rights has worked into the American soul. It becomes a way of life. It becomes a pattern of living. It becomes the immediate and default reaction when threatened. It urges you to grab what is rightfully yours and to you know where with everybody else. Well, that spirit of demanding rights was also in the soul of the Corinthians. And Paul was trying to help them learn the law of love, the pattern of Christ. And that sometimes the law of love calls on us to lay down our rights. And in actuality, these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, really comprise one long argument around this very point. Last week from chapter 8, Pastor Nick gave a very thought-provoking message on how Christians must balance their freedom, or my rights, with love. In chapter 9, the Apostle Paul will expand this vision, saying this love also extends to my non-Christian friend. For that spiritually lost friend, for the sake of making the message of Jesus clear, Paul said, I will lay down my rights. And then he will sum up this argument at the end of chapter 10. These three chapters taking together ooze with Paul's life-consuming passion And that is the gospel. And it's why I've called this message the gospel and all-consuming 
passion. These chapters are so linked together that if you'll allow me to go back and review chapter 8, which might be helpful because some of those concepts were required some thought. And then we can sail into chapter 9 and really understand the thought that Paul's getting into. But you remember, Paul has described our freedom in Christ. He says in one place, I am free from all men. What does that he actually mean by that? In context, he means I am free from having to keep religious laws or preferences that have their base in or traditions in man-based preferences. Let me say that again because that was confusing. It means I am free from having to keep religious laws or traditions that have their base in man-made preferences. I am free from having to blindly follow cultural expectations. I no longer have to, to submit to the demands of religious teachers that tell me God's love for me hinges on how well I follow their human preferences or their forced interpretations. I am free to love God and love others shaped by what is clear in His revealed Word. Now Paul had helped some in this Corinthian church come to this liberating understanding of human freedom. And Nick so clearly showed us last week that he refers to those who have grasped this freedom as the stronger brother. Yet that knowledge of freedom could be misused. Now Paul is very much uh, positive for us to gain knowledge. But in 1 Corinthians, he uses that word knowledge largely in a negative sense because of how it made some arrogant. The stronger brothers misused their freedom with those that Paul called weaker brothers. Who was the weaker brother? The weaker brother was not as free. The weaker brother restrained from doing things or participating in activities that God says you can enjoy. Former associations with those things clouded their conscience. Their conscience was guilty where it did not need to be. And here, in their arrogance, the stronger ones, by example, or by their encouragement, were intentionally breaking down the defenses of the weaker, thereby encouraging them to do what was sin for them, impelling them to do that. Specifically, if you remember the example... This involved eating meat that had been dedicated in pagan ceremonies. The stronger brother knows that all things belong to God. And that slab of ribs barbecuing there is just that. A slab of ribs. Nothing crazy is attached to it. Eating eating it will not inhabit him with demons. It will do nothing more than satisfy his belly. But the weaker brother connects that same slab of ribs to worshiping demons at that pagan festival. And his conscience appeals to him, saying, don't eat it. You will displease God. And so for him to eat it in that moment violates his conscience, injures his relationship with God, and he sins by doing so. Now Paul's heartfelt correction here 
is captured in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now, in laying down their freedom, we need to appreciate what Paul is asking them to do. Because the law of love can be costly. He's asking them to give up quite a bit for the sake of this weaker person. In their world like ours, just like ours, deals were cut and your social place was secured during gatherings around festivals, meals, and parties. Potential customers, friends, neighbors, political allies, all gathered with the expected customary participation. And to disassociate to some degree or form because of concern for a weaker member of the church was to risk social lowering or a lost deal or a lost ally. And so Paul, who recognizes what he's asking them to do, is seeking a way to persuade them to walk in this law of love. So Paul says, what in my own life can I point to by way of example? What rights have I forsaken? And Paul finds one. Now, Paul's not interested in self-promotion, nor am I seeking my own interest or interested in self-promotion this morning as well. And you'll see why I say that in a moment. But Paul finds a right that he has forsaken. And in this, he reveals his leadership and his heart to lead. He is saying in so many words, I am not asking you to make a sacrifice that I myself am not unwilling to make. You know, in the Greek world, Paul lived in here, orators, religious leaders, mystical oracles charged a great deal of money for their services. Scams abounded. On top of that, Paul is ministering in a place where there had not been a church for generations. The Christian faith was brand new, embryonic, and untested. It was a very unique historical moment. And these factors led Paul to forgo a right that he was entitled to. So, with that in mind, with Paul seeking to persuade them, let's now look at chapter 9. Let's see what freedom he has laid down and how he builds his case. Look at verse 1 in chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Seven questions, all of them rhetorical. The answer to the first six is an easy and emphatic yes, and the answer to the seventh is an easy and emphatic no. The Corinthians knew the answers to these questions. Now, some who had judged Paul unfairly concluded that his refusal to embrace these rights proved that he was not who he says he is, not an apostle. And to this claim, Paul reasserts 
his apostolic credentials. He had seen Jesus. He had started this church and he had loved this church family. And even though he chose to support himself through a trade, Paul made tents. He used his own hands to support himself. He still says, I have the right to be fed and paid by the Corinthians. Now, he builds his case for this from four different sources. Number one, he appeals to common sense. In verse 7, he said, Who serves as, as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? Now, Paul continues to ask three more rhetorical questions. And he turns to three everyday vocations. Soldier, farmer, and shepherd. And who would object to them receiving compensation for their work? It was self-evident. It made common sense. But Paul asked himself, well, maybe this is just from a human perspective, from human experience. Does God really confirm this same thing? And so we look at the next verse in verse 8. Paul says, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law, the Old Testament law, say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now today, when you want a loaf of bread, you go to the store and you buy a loaf of bread. But back then, it wasn't quite as easy. You needed to have that harvested grain. You needed to have the the stalk and the grain removed in order to bake bread. And here was one way they did it. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament law. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain. Here's how that worked. After the stalks of grain were harvested, they were spread out over a hard surface called a threshing floor. Tied to a central post, the oxen would walk around that post, dragging a very heavy board. That separated the grain from the stalk. Now, the Old Testament law did not allow the farmer to muzzle or to shut up the mouth of the ox so it could eat while it worked or whistle while it worked, whatever it preferred, but probably not at the same time. Paul paints this very vivid picture to support his thesis of why those working in the gospel should be supported by those that they serve. In verse 11, he connects us back to his own situation. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Now, Paul did not take advantage of this right. We'll see this in a moment. But he wants to show them how watertight this case is. He wants them to appreciate what he has given up. And to deepen his defense, he cites a third source. Look at the end of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in their sacrificial offerings? 
Again, he dips back into the Old Testament. He cites how the temple in Israel functioned. The temple was the place where sacrifices and religious rituals were carried out. And the temple workers, the priests and the Levites, were supported by those that they served. And finally, a fourth source that we can't be 100% certain, but it's very likely the fourth source is Jesus himself. Verse 14 harkens back to the instruction. It sounds like the instruction that Christ gave when he sent the apostles out two by two. Verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, common sense, the Old Testament law, the temple, and perhaps even Christ himself. In these four sources, Paul concludes convincingly, without question, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. But Paul has not taken advantage of these rights. Why? It's for the sake of the greater cause of the gospel. He did not want his receiving financial support to in any way hinder someone from considering the gospel's claims. Paul does everything. He does everything for the sake of the gospel and the blessings that it brings. It is his all-consuming passion, even to the point of sacrificing this right. Paul has asked them, in the big picture, Paul has asked them, for the sake of Christ, to abandon their me-first mentality. The average Corinthian threw himself into every party and every social custom in order to advance his or her stature. In their lawsuit-heavy culture, they were urged to demand their rights. But the way of Christ is different. Christ appeals to them from the standpoint of love and also the standpoint of the gospel message. The gospel message, living it, sharing it, advancing it in your city is a worthwhile cause. Even if you find there is economic, even if you find it costs you personally. Now that was a tough pill for them to swallow then. And friends, it's still a tough pill for us to swallow today. So, in light of this clear case of where Paul is going, let me reflect on this a little bit. And give both a little bit of a story of our own journey here at Linworth, and also a little story about our, our just some very simple, concrete applications that I think we can all make from this. First, a little bit of the story of Linworth. I still remember, I, I remembered this almost 40 years ago. The very early days of this church and the church uh, family that we're a part of, this issue was uh, vigorously discussed and debated. Namely, paying pastors a salary. Was that the right pathway? Now, there was a lot of precedent in the history of the church in the United States and America for freeing up individuals to work full-time in ministry. But it was not the only model. I had already mentioned that Paul had worked as a tent maker. We see that in 
Acts 18, and that he worked a trade and funded his support that way. Others have largely foregone that right. So we studied passages like this one and other passages, and we tried to think about the historical moment that we were in. This is the the late 70s. We tried to weigh the need for providing care for families in a long-term sort of way. We tried to think about our own cultural context and where the church was at in that moment. And we came to the conclusion that seeking to free up workers to be full-time in gospel work in this cultural context was a worthwhile goal. In a sense, it is a right that we have determined to take advantage of for the purpose of reaching our community and along the way to provide care and security for those leading us. And so to this very day, uh, encompassing many factors, we seek to find a, a fair and a just compensation package for our pastors and for our staff and families. Now, this is not to say this is the only approach, as Paul has illustrated. In many places around the world, in different settings, or because of conscience, or because of the historical moment, the tent-maker approach may be a more viable option. One other little side note here, we should, go, we should just reference quickly 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul said that as a, where he prays being a single adult. And he praised the idea that single adults can have an undistracted devotion to Christ. And indeed, being single made forsaking this right a little more sustainable. Now let's just continue to camp here for a moment if we, if we could. At this church, we don't talk very often about money. And uh, despite appearances, since it's come up twice already in this service. But if you're relatively new to this church, it may be helpful to explain our process and how it works here. The compensation and the support of our pastors and our staff here at Linworth comes solely from the tithes and from the gifts of those that consider Linworth their home. Now that word tithe may be completely foreign or unfamiliar to you. A tithe simply means a tenth. The tithe was the basis of giving in the temple. Jews gave a tenth of their produce every year, and every third year they would give an additional offering. This ensured the well-being of those who were employed full-time in temple service and also allowed them to minister to the poor who were among them. Now, this might feel radical to you if you're, again, relatively new to the faith or new to the church, and it'll feel radical if you're hearing it for the first time. But many in this church give 10% of their income to kingdom work, starting with this church. Many then give way beyond that, supporting missionaries, nonprofits, and other worthy causes. This has been the practice of Louise and I for many many years. With faith in God's provision, we have stayed with this practice through car replacements, home building, travel teams, kids' college expenses, replacing furnaces, etc., etc. 
We give 10% to Linworth on everything that we receive. And then above that, we give to other individuals and organizations that we love and that we support. It has been one of the greatest blessings of our lives to be able to give. Now, to be honest, for many years, I didn't feel that way. Giving was more perfunctory. I just wrote a check and didn't think much about it. I knew I was supposed to be an example. I knew it was the right thing to do. As a pastor, you feel like you should be setting the example and so forth. But in latter years, giving has become something that we love to do. We see it as a great privilege to be able to give, to be able to meet the needs of the poor, to be able to be a part of life transformation around the world. It is an amazing blessing. Louise and I believe that the church is the hope of the world. We believe the church is the only hope of the world. Only the church through Jesus can save the world. It is a vision we buy into and we experience great joy in supporting and being a part of that vision. And so if you are receiving a spiritual benefit here and you want to give back, I understand these words could throw you into something of a mental conflict, some consternation. Some of you cannot give that much. Your situation is different. That's okay. Just start where you are. Start where you are and be faithful in it. Seek the Holy Spirit's guidance. Uh, Take a class on finances from a biblical perspective. Begin to stretch your faith in this realm. Learning about what the Bible says about money will help you roll back debt or move your financial situation significantly forward. We want you to know there's grace here. We want you to give generously and freely, not under compulsion. We understand not all, some cannot give very much. But we also know that many of you can. And it's a great privilege to give. And I'm not going to promise you, whether you give a little or give a lot, I'm not going to promise you success in business or the fulfillment of the American dream or a Rolls Royce or anything other, you know, anything ridiculous that some people say. But I will promise you this, if you're faithful in this, you will have the blessing of knowing you are partnering with God. You are partnering with God in what He is doing around the world, bringing freedom and life and healing and lifting the poor spiritually and physically as the gospel spreads across this globe. I want you to know, and I mean this with all my heart, I want you to know, on behalf of our pastors and our staff, how grateful we are for how this body has taken seriously God's command and has cared for us and cared for our families. Not in this church, but in many churches in this country, there are hurting pastors, there are many resentful kids, there are embittered pastors' wives, because their church, frankly, was very cheap with them. They did the minimal, and they took advantage of them. Those church decision makers were not following the very clear commands of Scripture, take care of those who proclaim the gospel. I'm so grateful. This May will mark my 25th year here. And your story with me is one of great grace and generosity and support in this. 
So now having said all this, I'm in a little bit of an awkward position. If you can appreciate my vulnerability, because I can't point to my life as, as an example of laying down this particular right. So I thought and asked some questions to others, and I want to move in my final section here by mentioning two things that our pastors do lay down, two rights our pastors do give up. And then I want to encourage you to imitate our example. Here's the first one. The right for personal comfort. Personal comfort is one of the most cherished rights that we embrace, that Americans embrace. But Jesus said this about personal comfort. In Luke 9, he said, a man came up to him and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. In a sort of unabashed loyalty. And Christ says to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What does he mean by this somewhat cryptic saying? Jesus is telling this man, I believe that personal comfort is a right that will often have to be laid down if you're going to be my follower. And this is a right that pastors must often lay down. One expression of this is the personal comfort that comes from having a safe and predictable schedule or a normal job with normal hours. When you are focused on the people helping business, you must work with and around their schedules when they are available for counseling, when they are available to meet, when that crisis hits, you're there. No one schedules ahead of time their heart attack are receiving news that they have cancer. Now, I'm not complaining. Absolutely not. This is part of what you sign up for. When my pastor friend in Cleveland two weeks ago was faced with comforting his congregation after a home explosion killed four members of that church, I was there the next day. I had to be there I had to drop everything in that moment and be there. I knew Dave would be comforting his congregation, but I knew nobody would be there for him. You know, in those moments, a pastor cannot be concerned for his own needs. It's like, you know, it's like, all, it's like several people are hit by, it's like you, know, you, you and your family are hit by a truck. If you're the dad, you can't tend to your own wounds. You've got to tend to your kids' wounds. In the same ways in these kinds of crises, pastors can't, tend to their own wounds. They've got other wounds to tend to. And so I and others, we had to be there for Dave, even though I knew it would throw chaos into my already very busy schedule. We, we had to be there. My wife and I, through the years, have introduced some chaos into our home and hard work, our giving up of quiet evenings so that we can give our life away in order to reach others far from God. How can you lay your personal right, how can you lay down your personal right for comfort this week? How can you introduce a little chaos into your established routine so that others can experience Christ for the sake of the gospel? In this area, our pastors want to urge you to imitate our example. Here's the second thing. It's the right to not be mischaracterized. Let me explain what I mean by this. This one is tough. 
No one likes to be misunderstood, mischaracterized, or falsely accused. But when you are helping people, it is hard, if not impossible, to avoid that someone considers your care, your attention, inadequate or poor. This can happen for lots of reasons. It can happen because sometimes people's expectations are not fair. Or sometimes people are angry with God and they vent that anger towards you. Or thirdly, sometimes, frankly, you, you end up failing people. You should have showed up and you didn't. You miscalculated. You misinterpreted. You did not pick up on clues you should have picked up on. And then your attempts to seek reconciliation are not well received. And then in their frustration, they may say or they may write or they may tell others some things that are very untrue. Things that assault who you are and your intentions and motives. And and those are very painful things. And they, they, they may leave you. They may leave you as a friend or they may leave your church. Many times, if not most times, it is not appropriate to lash out, to fight back, to demand a hearing or demand that they stop. If you are committed to that person and want reconciliation and you want to bring peace, you therefore set aside your need for personal revenge or personal justice. And you have to, in a sense, absorb that, absorb that hurt in the same way that Christ absorbs our hurt. You know, when we fight back for vengeance or fight back, we feel some power in that, don't we? We feel powerful when we fight back, when we demand revenge. That's why we so often do it. When we've been hurt, we feel powerless. And so the way to get power is to demand revenge. That's not the way of the cross. It's not the pattern of the cross. The pattern of the cross is weakness. In that context, it's weakness. This is something at what Jesus was arriving at in Matthew 5.39. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go two with him. Now, is this license for anybody anywhere to walk all over you? No. I don't believe that is the thrust of Jesus' talk. The ethic of Jesus is to walk in love, and there are moments when the loving thing to do is to say, enough. There is a time to defend oneself. We see Paul doing this in the very chapter we've looked at. He was defending his record over and against those other apostles who were trying to wrestle away the affection of the Corinthians. But Jesus is getting at the heart. He so often does this. He is doing surgery on that self-protective default reaction that says, I must always protect myself at any cost. I must always demand my rights in every conflict I cannot lose. And that mentality is disaster in marriages, it's disasters in parents relating to children, it's disaster in families, it's disaster in neighborhoods and churches and societies. And what all of those entities do is they fall apart eventually. They disintegrate. They disintegrate 
with that kind of mentality? Are you willing to turn the other cheek? Are you willing to not win for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to risk vulnerability and get involved with people even though at times they will be disappointed with you or the expectations will be unmatched or unjust blame will come to you that you never asked for or signed up for? This is what our pastors do. This is how they work through the gospel. And I want to urge you to follow, to imitate us in this realm. We do it not for the reward in this life. We do it because Christ became poor for us. He laid down all of His rights when dying on the cross. He forsook the right for personal comfort when they beat the crown of thorns into his brow. He sacrificed this right to not be mischaracterized when they jeered at him, when they mocked him, when they called him all sorts of names as he hung naked before the world on the cross. You see, that kind of love has captured us. I know it's captured many of you. It changes us. It's why we do what we do. It's why we're willing to give up our rights when God leads us in that way. Here's the big idea of this passage relating to every single one of us. And here it is. When we are gripped by such love, Christ becoming poor for us, our focus on personal comfort gives way to a focus on advancing the gospel and the blessings of it brings. This is what our church is about. This is what we want to be about. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for our few moments here together this morning. And I'm sure, Father, that because of the reality of your Holy Spirit that you take your words, not mine, you take your words and you apply them to every person here in unique and creative ways. And I pray, Father, that each individual would be able to hear your voice and to apply the truth of your words to their setting, to their marriage, to their friendship, to their parenting, to their vocational world to their world of existing in the church and in the kingdom of God. Father, may all of us be like Paul and develop this all-consuming passion to live, breathe, share, communicate, embody this gospel which brings blessing to all of life and brings blessing to the entire world. Let us live in that through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening and joining our mission. For more content or to learn more about us, visit linworthroadchurch.com.